This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash ifreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 108 of the iFreaks show. Today in our, on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. I'm James Uber from Minneapolis, and we have a new panelist. Please welcome Mike Ash. Hi, this is Mike. I'm from uh, Fairfax, Virginia. So, Mike, we've had you on the show before, but never as a panelist, and a lot of people know who you are. You've been doing a lot of cool things in you know the Mac and iOS world, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I work at Plausible Labs. Um, we do various things, including uh, PL Crash Reporters, maybe our most famous thing, and uh, we also have a product called Voodoo Pad that we uh, work on, and we do some consulting on the side. Uh, I personally write a technical blog called NS Blog, uh, home of Friday Q&A, where I talk about various crazy antics that I get up to over there. Uh, lots of fun, low-level stuff, and um, that's, uh, I guess that's about it. I've picked articles from your blog many times, and, and I've picked the whole blog a couple times, but I do want to say to people out there listening, it's one of my favorite blogs because, I mean, you go into depth on things that other people don't really touch, and I've just learned a lot from it over the years. So if you have not checked out Mike's blog, you definitely should. It's what I try to go for. You know, I, I think the, uh, the sort of basics and how to build windows and things like that, Nothing wrong with that, but it's covered, and I wanted to try to bring something different. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the, the stuff you write over there. I have been reading it for, I don't know, as long as I can remember knowing about it, at least four or five years, I think. Well, excellent. It's a lot of fun to write. It uh, takes up some time, but it's uh, I, I love the audience. I always get great comments on it, and it's always fun to have an excuse to do crazy things. And I must say, your last Friday Q&A, which I think you, are you only doing them once a month, or did you just skip one? <laughs> I try to do it once every two weeks. It depends on how, how it all works yeah, out. Well, that's completely understandable, but your article about fuzzing and AFL fuzz was pretty cool. Well, yeah, tell that, us a that, little bit about uh, the Friday Q&A. What is that? Yeah, so uh, basically the idea is that I wanted to write a blog, how it came about. I wanted to write a blog, but I couldn't think of anything to really to write about. I had one. I set it up. I wrote a few articles, but it was really sporadic. And how do you come up with stuff? So I finally decided that I'll just have people tell me what to write about. You know, What do you want me to write about? So that's um, basically what it is. People write in with suggestions. I pick what I like. Uh, I write something down. And uh, it used to be every Friday, then every other Friday, as long as I can get it out on time. 
So that's basically what it is. And I try to pick, you know, really interesting, more advanced kinds of topics, preferably things like reverse engineering things or assembly language. Uh, one of the things I like to do is rebuild from scratch system APIs or system classes to kind of get an idea of how they would work internally and demystify the things so that I see a lot of people build apps and they have this idea with APIs that they're doing something magical. And a lot of them are really actually very simple once you dig into them. And I think rebuilding them is the best way to show that. Yeah, I, I really like that uh, aspect of the blog. I, I've been doing a little teaching lately, and I'm teaching people who are complete beginners to um, to iOS, but particularly some of them are complete beginners to programming in general. And it's hard for me, and I tr really try to sort of drill into them that all of this stuff that they're using is not some magical thing. People like them wrote it, and they could do the same with, with enough knowledge and skill. Unless you're writing Lisp, then it's just magic. <laughs> well, yeah, right. It's not magic. You just need a large store of parentheses. Yeah. Just got to keep the parenthesis warehouse well stocked. Exactly. You know, not many people can afford that kind of resources. So it's, it's an exclusive club. So yeah, I actually uh, managed to win the International Obfuscated Sea Contest one year with a Lisp program. So that's uh, a little connection there. Oh, that's interesting. I wrote a Lisp interpreter, not really Lisp, but like a very, very limited subset of Lisp. I wrote it in C, and I wrote it so that it was also a Lisp program that printed itself out if you ran it from within itself. So I'd like to see that. You should put a link in the show notes. I will do that. Yes, I do. And then uh, later I wrote a Tetris program that had no control constructs in it, but that one didn't win. So there's the uh, Lisp program. It's kind of unreadable by nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I scored pretty highly on that contest one year, but it was entirely unintentional. Uh-oh. <laughs> Here's a link to the Tetris program in case anybody's wondering. I think that one's even more unreadable. It looks a lot more structured, but it's really just... I had a lot of difficulty wow. with that one because they have a length limit on the uh, submissions, and it was really difficult to compress it down enough to get it in there. I actually had to write a little script that would go through all the identifiers and do a frequency analysis on them so I, I could properly dedicate all of the one-character identifiers to where they would do the most good in shrinking the code. That's fun. Yeah, you have very... I guess you don't really have any that you defined that are longer than one one character. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Well, so we, we were talking before the show about what you're working on for your work right now and thought it would make a good topic. Do you want to introduce that for us? Sure. So uh, we're looking at how to enhance VoodooPad for the future, and one of the things that we're really interested in is synchronization and collaborative editing. So right now, uh, we save documents on Dropbox. Sorry, we don't do that necessarily, but you can, and the app is built to work with that to an extent. So you can save a document on Dropbox, and you get it on all your computers, and you can edit it here and edit it there. And the uh, the typical approach to that is to store things in a file and Dropbox syncs them. And the trouble comes in when you're editing things from more than one place at once. If you have two people on two different computers, for example, or if it's just you on two computers and you happen to have one that drops offline and doesn't sync up before you edit on the other one, you get sync conflicts and it's a pain. So I've been experimenting with synchronization solutions that work cleanly with third-party providers like Dropbox and avoid all of that mess and make it all work cleanly. Okay, so th this this whole idea of, of syncing documents or, or syncing data that's that could, can potentially be open and being edited on two machines at once is certainly not a new problem, right? It's something that... Has been... Yeah, it's, that's, that's been out there forever. Apple's now doing it with iCloud, and uh, lots of Apple apps and third-party apps are doing it. Explain to us some of the... Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the, the big issue is that you have to somehow deal with 
the document being edited on both machines at once, but explain to us sort of why that, that can be such a tough thing to deal with. Right. So the easy, kind of the easy situation to deal with is one where every time you make a change, it goes to the server and you never make a change without having the latest stuff. And that's kind of how the iCloud model works. That's how uh, most of these apps work because it's a relatively easy way to approach it. It's kind of like the, the subversion model. Uh, if you're looking at version control stuff for source code applied more generally. So like you're working with the document on one machine, you make a change, it goes up. Then you work on with that document on another machine, you get the latest version apply your changes. Everything just kind of flows linearly that way. And then the, the problem comes where if I make a change on one computer, you know, say I add a word to the first paragraph in this document, and then you make a change on your computer without grabbing my copy first, because maybe there was a network problem, or you're on an airplane over the middle of the ocean, or uh, there was just some sort of bug that you hit in uh, in a service. Anyway, you say, let's say you add a word to the second paragraph, without having my change first. And now at some point, those two changes have to be reconciled. And as human beings, we can look at these changes and we can typically understand the intent of them and say, well, you added a word here and he added a word there, and they're not really related changes, so we can just apply them both and end up with a copy that neither one of us actually saw when we were making the changes, but that makes sense given what we did. And it's just very difficult to get a computer to apply that sort of intelligence. The thing that it brings to mind for me, having never implemented this in an app, is that you you sort of fundamentally have the same problem with source control or version control systems. Yes, it's it's very much the same kind of problem. It's just kind of applied to other situations. In fact, something like Git makes a very nice way to control text documents in general as well. Well, that leads to my next question, which which is you. It's, it sounds like you're implementing this system yourself, but did you before you started? Did you look at existing solutions or sort of yeah, I poked around to see what's out there. Since I'm I'm very much in the experimental phase with this, some of it was the intent was to just see what I could get done and see what I could come up with as well. Um, but I looked at at existing version control systems. I also looked at a guy named Neil Fraser came up with something called differential synchronization, which I'm posting the link to in the chat. And that is uh, mostly what I'm kind of building it off of is this, the stuff that he wrote. So the basic idea. Because this reconciliation process is something that depends on the structure of the document, you can't just take you know, my bytes and your bytes and combine them into some third set of bytes because what if this document is actually an image and that might not make any sense. So what happens is that Dropbox essentially just gives up on the whole idea. And if you ever end up in this situation, it just takes your copy and my copy and saves them both and marks one of them as, you know, this is your conflicted copy and here's what we think is the most recent copy and figure it out. So in order to make this work, you either need some sort of smart centralized server that can understand the contents and not just look at everything as sort of an unstructured bag of bytes, or you need some way to do this that deals with everything as kind of separate files so that something like Dropbox doesn't come in and try to reconcile things that way, which since I want everything to work with Dropbox or any other sort of service like that, I've been taking that approach. And the idea is basically to log each computer's actions into a separate file that's all sort of bundled together. And then the master document is actually the combination, sort of the logical combination of all those files, rather than being an actual single file on the disk. Okay, so that's how Voodoo Pad stores information. It's a collection of files. That's that's how it works right now, but this uh, this is going a little bit deeper now. Currently, the way Voodoo Pad works is every page is a file, and the way my experimental system works is every computer's edits to a page is a separate file. So, if, we're, if I work on a page A 
from one computer that goes into one file and then if I work on that same page A from another computer that goes into a separate file. So you know, now you have two files whose contents are both contributing to the final page and that reconciliation happens on the fly essentially. And so that allows the individual computers to apply merging logic to what's been going on without requiring the syncing service like Dropbox to get involved. All it has to do is make sure that those files exist everywhere. Interesting. So is there, at some point, do you sort of flatten those down? And I mean, because at, at some point it seems like those files that describe edits would just build up and build up and you've got right. lots that's, and lots of files laying around. Exactly. That's one of the things I'm, I'm working on to, to figure out good solutions for. So right now what happens is as you work every so often, it takes a snapshot because right now, whenever you, what those files contain is not actually the page, but just the edits that you applied to that page. So if you type out, for example, hello world, it'll record that you type the letter H and then it records that you type the letter E. And the idea is that you have the sequence of events that you can play back and you can play them back in different orders and things like that. And that's how you can reconcile conflicting edits afterwards. And that gets expensive to play that back every time. So every so often you take a snapshot. This is the current state as I see it, as I understand it. And you can start from there. And yeah, eventually it'll, it'll still build up. You would want to maybe throw away old data. Part of the idea is that this allows you to essentially keep a history as well so that you can go back in time in case you delete data that you wanted to keep or something like that. So keeping all this stuff around forever might actually be a feature rather than a bug. But on the other hand, people may want to get rid of the old stuff eventually as it clutters things up. So looking at options for maybe making it optional, maybe cleaning old stuff out after a while. It's, uh, it's hard to figure out exactly what people will need just yet. Those are some of my ideas. So as you do snapshots, do you build off the most recent snapshots or do you build from the beginning of time when you're building these things together? The way I have it right now is when the app starts up, it finds the most recent snapshot and then applies any edits that come after that to come up with the current state of the document. And then as you work, it creates new snapshots at intervals, saves them back to the file, and then those become visible to anybody else who comes along and opens the document. Okay, and so your last snapshot's the source of truth, and you make changes to that. And as exactly. new snapshots are created, then those become the source of truth that you build off of. Right, exactly. Which avoids things like rebuilding everything that's been done since you started this right. You know, this document, which could be huge right. and very And small. the way I have it right now, it's still saving all of that history. So if you wanted to go back and see how things were, then you could conceivably do it. I haven't built the code yet. But the, all that data is still there. So if you wanted a, an ongoing history of how this page used to look, it's all in there. And if you didn't, because the snapshots are used, you could ditch everything before the latest snapshot and still have everything you needed to construct the most recent state. So what are some you know common approaches for document sync? You talked about your approach where you're creating different files for each change. Are there some other ways that people are doing this? Well, uh, the most common approach, like I said, is to basically give up on the idea. Uh, <laughs> and essentially, if you edit based off of something that's not the latest, then it just gives up and says, well, now you have two copies, figure it out. That's how I've seen iCloud do it. Like if you open an iCloud document in Pages or Keynote or something like that, you make a change while you're offline and make a change on another computer at the same time, then once everything gets back online, you'll end up and it'll say, hey, which copy do you want to keep? This is really easy to implement. It's obviously not the nicest for the user. We are typically connected a lot of the time these days, so it doesn't come up that often, but it is a rough point. Another approach is to just kind of keep everything online. For example, I think Google Documents does this. You can collaboratively edit a single Google document from multiple computers and all your edits show up live and things like that. And basically the way that works is that you're just online and that makes sure everybody's always up to date. So what's, what's different with, with our approach is 
we really wanted not to have our own service. You know, with something like Google Documents, you've got your own service that they have servers that are running fancy code that manage all this stuff. Apple's running iCloud. You know, they have probably 10 million servers running all this code. And what we would really like to do is not require people to sign up for, for example, our own stuff, but allow people to keep using whatever services they're currently using, whether it's Dropbox or Google Drive or Microsoft Sky, whatever, and build our solution so that it still works well on other people's stuff. A lot of what you've talked about so far is something you can do in VoodooPad because VoodooPad is essentially text files, right? Right. And it seems like some of this stuff breaks down if you're instead editing images or editing audio files or something like that where it's not, not so easy. Right. Right. That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, for something like images, it's hard to see how this could work because an, an image is kind of fundamentally a nonlinear thing, right? You've got it. It's a two dimensional thing and you could apply your edits and I could apply my edits and they're typically global edits, right? If you're applying a filter or something like that to the entire image, it's hard to see how you could allow that to work. It's interesting to think about it in the context of audio editing because audio editing is a lot more like text editing in that a lot of times you're just, you're slicing things out, maybe rearranging things, inserting effects. And I could see an audio editor potentially using an approach like this if you kept a list of edits and tried to apply them intelligently. Yeah, once, sure. the, once that's gotten out to a WAV file, you know, that's not going to work. But definitely if you're keeping track of effects and what the effect right. is, that type of thing can be replayed. Right. Like I could see, you know, editing a podcast, for example. I imagine a lot of it is is chopping out bits that you uh, that sound stupid or chopping out long bits of silence and things like that. And you could definitely have something like that where you're just recording the parts that you don't want anymore. And that could all get sort of applied to the document after the fact, reconciled on the slide like that. That's interesting. Yeah, but I freaked remix. I yeah. like it. In any case, it sounds like for this sort of solution to work, whatever program is doing the merge or the synchronization, whatever you want to call it, has to know something about the format in question. So. Yes, I think so. Uh, in the case of text, my current approach is to essentially record some of the context where you make the changes. So, you know, if you're if you're adding a word in the middle of a paragraph, it'll record the before and after. And so that way, when it goes to reapply that edit event to a slightly changed document, because maybe I've already applied your edits, then I can take that context and try to figure out where does this best fit now. So that kind of fit, you'd, you'd have to uh, definitely have to know about the structure of the documents to be able to do that. With audio data, you could apply the same context idea, but you would need to understand that your audio samples are, you know, two bytes wide or four bytes wide or whatever they are, how to actually get at that stuff. But the cool thing is that only the client has to know about it, not the server. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting. The server is now just a regular dumb file. Right. As long as the server can make files up here on multiple computers as they're changed, then we're good. Well, there's one scenario that we, I don't think we've mentioned yet that I'm curious about, and that is, you know, say you've you've got a document with with two paragraphs, and one user edits the or completely changes the first sentence of that paragraph to say something new, or changes a few words in that sentence, and then the other user changes the exact same words to something else. So you've got a conflicting change. How do you deal with that? Right. So that's that's a really interesting question. I think in a, from a theoretical point of view, that basically there, there's no right answer. Somebody has to win. Essentially, somebody's edits have to go away. The way my code currently handles that is it will apply all of the edits and it will just try to figure out the best place to put them. And in the scenario as you gave it, what will likely happen is 
you'll end up with both sentences. I think the uh, interesting bit of torture test to uh, to see how what it comes up with right now. But essentially, what it's going to do is for every edit, right? It goes through, it takes that context, it tries to figure out where in the current document best matches the context of the edit as it came in. So if you're typing something, you know, say you've deleted that first sentence and you're typing something new, then that context is going to be, for example, you know, it's going to say this came right before the second sentence. And so as you're applying those, you apply that first edit, maybe and that applies cleanly because you're the first one there. And then you're applying that second edit, which happened simultaneous with the, simultaneously with the first one. But now you've got this extra content there. The context that it'll figure out will probably be like before or after the new content. So it'll say, well, this seems to fit best because here's here's a context match, right? We recorded that it was before the second sentence, and now we'll just put it in before the second sentence again. So you definitely need some human oversight. Now, the idea is not to be perfect, but to apply things such that things, you know, you want it to succeed where it can and at least do something not catastrophic where it can't. So I think in the long run, if we run into something like that, we would probably either... If if it conflicts too much, I imagine we might ditch a copy, might save it and present both, something like that. The idea is to make sure that it only happens if you're doing something that really, truly conflicts, like you both edit the same sentence and not just, you know, you edited a sentence over here and I edited a sentence over there. It's a conflict just because it happens to be on the same page. It seems like in, in this case where you do have true conflicts, the, this whole problem moves sort of out of the realm of an interesting sync problem into a, a plain old app design UI kind of. Yes, I think that's there there's always going to be a limit where the computer the computer can only help you so much. And you know, in in the end, imagine if we're collaborating on a document, you know, and I decide, well, this sentence is terrible and it really should say this, and you might have a completely different idea about what it should say. And maybe we get into an argument about that <laughs> and the computer can't really solve that for you, you know. At some point, people have to work things out. That's when we get into the area of you know merge strategy, right? And how much context can you provide about the application, what the users are trying to do, that can help you about that. What are the common approaches? I'm sure it's something that people have been thinking about for years. But we're talking about merging. Yeah, how do I'm, do uh, this? I'm I'm not as familiar as I probably should be for this, but it basically boils down to either trying to find a way to replay history so that everything is consistent, and you know maybe if if you've got you might have multiple edits that don't depend on each other. And so the idea is you can apply them in different orders. And so you might search for an order that makes sense. Or you might just bail out and tell the user, you know, here's a conflict. And so you can try to use your history to a varying degree to try to figure out something that makes sense. And there are ideas about using semantic information, like especially if you're doing code with version control. If you can apply more information about what the code actually means instead of just the textual representation, you can do a lot better. For example, you might have most version control systems out there work on a line basis. So if I edit a line and you edit a line, that'll be a conflict. But if you have semantic information about it, you might be able to tell that, for example, I edited a variable name, whereas you edited the variable's type. And those two could be applied simultaneously without having any trouble. That's just built on the specifics of your app or your document type. Right. For something like that, you need to know what's what it all means. So it's interesting to think about that as applies to a more general app like VoodooPad or TextEdit or something like that, where the language in, in use is not a formal language, but it's something like English. And it's interesting to sort of ponder the possibilities. What if you gave the computer some sort of understanding of the language and could you use that to improve merge strategies? And I don't know what the answer is, but it's 
interesting. I think, think you would have to pick a logical language. Right. I'm, that would certainly help. Maybe we could go back to uh, Lisp and we can do everything with S expressions instead of English. And then this whole problem can, becomes really easy. We can only speak that way. We'd be, yes. we'd be all set. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to try. I'm tempted, but I'm not going to try. <laughs> yeah. Like, it just reminded me of a Star Trek The Next Generation episode where they meet some aliens that speak in binary. I, I don't think they ever explain anything beyond they speak in binary. You know, yeah. Who knows what that means? But Yeah, that's uh, that's one of those things that almost sounds like it makes sense until you think about it. <laughs> right. We, we've kind of, during this whole discussion, been talking about a scenario where multiple users are editing, you know, where you've got two users that are both editing a document on two different machines. For, for VoodooPad in particular, is that a scenario that you actually see uh, being being the common one, or is it just that a user has a desktop and a laptop, and you know, it's it's more typically the the one user with two computers case. I find it easier to think about the case where it's more uh, where it's multiple people working on a single document. But when you really get down to it, they're more or less equivalent because I run into sync conflicts with my documents that I've never shared with anybody. And the way it works is. I made an edit on my desktop computer, right? And then I had to go somewhere and I grab my laptop and I wander off and I pop open my laptop and I make a change there and not realizing that it never connected to the network and I'm still offline and I'm working off an old copy. And now I have a sync conflict that I have to deal with. From the computer's perspective, that's really no different from the scenario where you actually have two live humans working on the same thing. So it, it uh, it's easier to not try to think about, you know, computers and humans as being different entities here. It's all just sort of, you know, you've got the device, whatever it is, is editing the document on, it doesn't matter whose behalf it's on once you get down to that level. And so if you can solve the problem of multiple people all working on the same document, then you also solve the problem of one person working on the same document from different computers with network connectivity problems or whatever might be going on. It seems like if we, we just always had a hundred percent reliable zero latency internet connection, a lot of this would get a lot easier. That really would solve a lot. I, I'm definitely all for that solution, for sure. I think that might be a little harder, though. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that's in the in the near future. Write your congressman. Yes, there you go. Oh, I'm sure they'll be the ones to fix it. I do see a lot of apps that sort of seem to assume that, though. It's, uh, it's a little shocking and annoying. There's so many apps that if you launch them and you don't have a good network connection, they'll just sort of lock up because they're trying to contact the mothership before they actually do anything. Yeah, so that that's actually what I was getting at, which is that for, for the average app developer that might be listening to this, it's kind of easy to forget that there's a difference between you in your house with a 100 megabit connection via you know a really reliable Wi-Fi and the actual users of your app who are going to be out on a poor cellular connection or, you know, often on an iPad with no Wi-Fi connection at all or whatever. With an actual device, because we're testing in our simulator, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually don't. The apps I work on, we can't test in the simulator because they use audio API or the, the iPod library APIs. So, I definitely think that's a key point because it, it really is something that a lot of apps miss. Uh, I think my favorite example of this is AT&T has an app called Mark the Spot, and it's an app that you can use to report network problems. Basically, if you're in, in an area where you think you should have good data coverage or something like that, but you don't, you can use this app to report it. And it's hilarious because it calls home as a blocking thing. The, the entire UI will lock up when you launch it if you don't have a good connection. 
And the whole point is to report a bad connection. Is that you only use this in places where you have a bad connection? Yes. So it does. It usually does get through eventually, but it's it's very painful to use the app because you'll start it and you have to sit there and look at it, and it's got all these buttons like you know select what you want to do, and they won't work. I've used that app before, and <laughs> basically all I do is just mark my own house because the oh, yes. service is so bad here. Um, we actually just finally broke down and bought a microcell from AT&T, uh-huh. and it was uh, $75, which I feel a little ripped off having to pay for their poor network coverage, pay even more. But I'm Yeah, sorry. I always found that a little weird. It has worked very nicely. Well, that's that's definitely a bonus. I'm lucky to have good coverage. There's a few areas I go to out and about where every so often it, it stops working, and I uh, I report it slowly. Yeah, I think that's. But I see this. I see this in a lot of different apps. Uh, even like Siri, for example. If you uh, you know you trigger the thing and you start talking to it and you let go, and if you have bad network connection, it'll spin for a while and then it'll say, "I'm sorry, I couldn't do that," and it completely forgets what you told it. So there's no retry button or anything. What would be ideal is if it would automatically retry, for example, or maybe you could have a button that says, you know, hey, I think I might have better connection. I'll try it again. But instead, you have to remember what you just said and repeat it. And it's a really weird failure mode because the thing is definitely capable of remembering what you said until it actually can communicate back to Apple, but it just doesn't. And they, they seem to have assumed that connections are much more reliable than they really are. So I think this is, you know, for advice to the people listening, don't do this in your own app. Think about the the scenario where somebody does not have a good network connection or doesn't have one at all. Um, the, the apps I work on pretty much require a persistent internet connection, but we spend a lot of time and go out of our way to think about how they should behave when there's not a network connection. Right. And Apple has a network link conditioner, which can be really useful for this. Uh, it basically lets you simulate a bad network without actually having to drive out in the middle of nowhere or whatever it takes. I guess go to your house. And... Um, Another fun thing to do is you typically will have a bottleneck for network activities in your app somewhere. You know, every every HTTP request, for example, might go through one chunk of code. It's a, a lot of apps are designed that way. And what can be really interesting and entertaining and useful is to just put a little bit of st- something in that code where every time it makes a call out, it randomly adds a delay between 1 and 10 seconds. Or 20% of the time, it returns an error. And just put that in there and, you know, put some uh, comments around it to make sure you don't accidentally commit it and, uh, you know, or at least keep it turned off and run the app that way and use it and see how it behaves when everything is failing sort of inconsistently. And obviously if your app depends on the network, it doesn't have to be usable, but it should at least fail gracefully. Yeah, I think that's the key. Some some apps, the the network, a network connection is just absolutely vital to whatever it is they do. So. It's okay to throw up a screen that says you don't have a network connection, you know, yep. come back when you do, but don't... But don't lock up the UI or something right. like that. Right, or yeah, don't... Definitely try to handle it somehow. Don't lose user data that they've already spent the time doing. Yes. Yeah, that's that's really the worst. There's, there's so many apps out there where you type in something and then you hit send and it hits an error and then, then you go back and it's all gone. And then you hate the world. And... Mm-hmm. Rage quit. And... Yes. Rage tweet, except it's usually the Twitter clients doing this. <laughs> yeah, I have seen several of them do that. Uh, also, if you use the network link conditioner, which we should remember to put a link to that in the show notes, don't forget that you have it active. Or you'll, or yeah, you'll, that, that you'll figure that out pretty quick, though. Stuff. When you go to well, Google and nothing shows up. 
Hey. I think it depends on how badly you've you've turned it down because you know it can be advantageous to test on on a moderately bad connection, right? What if you set it up to like five twelve kilobyte DSL connection with you know five percent packet loss? Then you're just gonna be angry all day and maybe not realize that it's broken. Okay. Do you find much use out of those? Because I've used the network link conditioner for like the, you know the bad connections, and I don't find them to really weed out any bugs. I usually have it offline or full on. I don't find that I get much use out of doing like the bad connection. It seems stuff just kind of works. I prefer to do my own. Like like I said, if there's a bottleneck, put in some code to artificially delay things. And where the bugs really hit, in my experience, are especially like loading images and things like that, where they come in out of order. If you end up with a large delay between requests and it's an inconsistent delay so that request two comes back first and then request one comes back 10 seconds later, that can reveal caching bugs and things like that. It's really common for things like table view cells to be implemented where when the table view cell is, is first displayed, it triggers a download. And then once the download is complete, it puts the image in there. And there are a lot of apps out there, a lot of code out there where um, you might do that and the table view cell goes out of view because the user scrolled it away and then it gets reused for something else. And then that image download from the first time finally completes and then you get the wrong image in there. And um, for the link conditioner, it's harder to trigger things like that. You know, it's definitely a realistic scenario, but it's rare. And the link conditioner doesn't necessarily trigger it very frequently. So I like to do my own my own delay code for that. But, uh, you know, I think you can use them both, try it out, see what pops up. It's uh, it's a good exercise. You know, at the very least, even if you don't encounter any bugs, you can at least see what it's like to use your app on a bad connection and maybe get some ideas for improvements that way, even if there are no bugs. It'd be an interesting open source project to to start messing with your requests and just randomly dump one. And you wouldn't even need to do it in your code. You have a framework that you just wire up that causes havoc. Yes, that would that would be a fun little project. That's uh, it's a good idea. Then everybody can have the benefit of trouble. <laughs> I'll have to make sure to put in some code that warns you if you try to ship it or something. So for the for app developers who are trying to implement some, you know, basic sanity regarding being offline, how do you detect that you're offline? Or how do you know if you're online or on Wi-Fi? So ideally, don't try to detect it, but just try to make your requests and then gracefully handle a failure. You know, if you're if you're talking to a server, then just try to talk to the server, and it'll work or it won't work. And if it doesn't work, you might be online, but the server is down, or you're online, but there's something in the way, and you know the server's been blocked because uh, it got taken over by a botnet or something like that. So, you know, the the best way to find out if something will work is to try it, and if it will work, then it does work. Won't, then it doesn't. If you really need to find out ahead of time, you can use Apple's um, connect, uh, sorry, reachability API, and this will give you a sort of basic go no go as to uh, you know is there actually a network connection available at all, and is does that network connection maybe look like it kind of leads to the internet somehow? So I, I reachability is I think especially useful for telling when the device is definitely not online because it's pretty easy to tell if you know there is just no Wi-Fi connection or. Right. Or no cellular service, but I've seen people make the mistake of thinking that because reachability says the device is online, that everything is fine. When re- could be that the server they're trying to talk to is down, or right, yeah. or you and might just be on a network which which can't connect to the internet for some reason. Or, you know, there's a ton of different failure modes, but it's great to have to to specialize your error messages that way because if you're not on a network at all, you don't want to say couldn't connect to the server. You'd like to be able to say, you know, hey, get on some Wi-Fi or something. 
Yeah, reachability makes itself a little bit confusing that way because you can initialize it with a URL saying, oh, right. here's my server. This, this should be up if reachability's up, and that's not how it works. Yeah, it's, it's very much a local thing, and it doesn't always make that clear. But it's still really useful, for sure. So regarding the other tests you were talking about, you know, just making a request, throwing it out there, seeing if it fails. You know, if the server's down, hopefully you're getting a 500, something like that. Right. But if the server is slow and you're getting a, a slow response, how do you, you know, configure your request so you can do that reasonably? You can figure, okay, something's not happening right. We don't have the connection we need without sitting there for what's the default timeout? It's minutes. Right. So, I mean, the first thing to do is make sure that all of your requests are asynchronous. You know, you don't want to be blocking anything on that. You, uh, your UI should remain responsive. You want to make sure that the user can cancel whatever it is that you're doing if they get fed up. You can't tell whether the user is willing to wait for 10 seconds or 10 minutes. So if you can let them say, you know, this sucks, I'm going to come back and try it again later, then that'll help them a lot to be able to say that. And then as far as your own code goes, you know, if you can figure out some sort of reasonable timeout and you don't want to make it too short because if people are on a bad connection that they're willing to put up with, you don't want to say, well, I'll only wait for 10 seconds because maybe they wanted to wait more and they will, if they're willing to put up with their bad connection, they will get upset with you for not putting up with it. Yeah. If product, a, product manager says 60 seconds is too bad. And right. you know, the user may know they're on a bad connection and saying, you know, I need this information. I'll wait. Right. So it's good to give that power, keep the power in the user's hands. It's a good pattern. Yeah, I've I've seen internet connections out there, uh, like weird cellular connections, where the ping time is literally like two minutes, and everything still works, but it literally takes like two or three minutes to get anything done. And in a case like that, if you send off a command, you know, it would be great if it could just wait. So really, I think giving the user power, the the power to decide that on their own, is really a, a good way to go. And if your connection times out. You know, use, if you're using the default system timeouts, then you'll get an error back that way and definitely need to handle it. But just being asynchronous and giving user control is really helpful. I also wanted to mention this, the reachability stuff, getting back to that. Um, another thing it's really good for is uh, finding out when to retry a thing, um, when to retry a request. Because not only can reachability tell you, yes, you're, you appear to be on a network or no, you're not, but it can also call you back when that changes. So if the user initiates a request, for example, and it can't connect and you realize you're not even on a network, then you can have reachability tell you, hey, you're actually online now. Maybe you could try that request at this point without having to force the user to do it on their own. So that's another nice thing you can do to uh, kind of improve the experience. One of the apps we work on, if the network connection, so you queue up a bunch of stuff to be done and it potentially, depending on how many, it, you're, it's analyzing songs, but um, there's a web component of that, and depending on how many you've queued up, it could take hours. And if your network connection drops right in the middle, uh, it pauses that. But if we can tell that the network connection has come back online, we resume that. So, you know, because a lot of times users walk away, they're not even, this is this is a Mac app, of course, not an iOS app, but they walk away, they're not even near their computer to, to know that anything's gone wrong, and it's kind of uh, a bummer to come back and find out that the whole thing stopped 10 minutes after you walked away and never started itself up again. Yeah, that's that sort of thing is really good. You know, think about how your users are going to use it, and being able to recover when things go wrong can be really nice. Because if your connection drops for ten seconds and then that just kills the whole process, yeah, that's no good. So yeah, reachability can really help like that. Uh, even if you ignore that, just retrying failed requests can be a really helpful thing. If you just retry things automatically, that can 
make the user experience a lot nicer. So how do you determine how often to retry? <laughs> that Every is second? a good question. I, uh, I pretty much just wing it. Um, my usual approach is to go for a sort of exponential back off kind of thing. You know, if it failed, retry within a second. If that fails, try again like 10 seconds later. If that fails, maybe try a minute later. And if that fails, well, you know, you're out of luck at this point, depending on, you know, what it is. If it's in, an interactive thing, then you don't want to take too long. If it's something where, uh, like with the song analysis stuff, if it, uh, if it might be taking a long time, then you definitely want to keep retrying. But the idea, you know, with that, like if the connection's been down for five minutes or, you know, whatever the problem is, the server's unreachable for five minutes, then there's no point in trying once a second because you've already been dead for five minutes. If you're trying once a minute at that point, you're not wasting too much time relative to how long you've been waiting. And so if you can kind of back off a little bit like that, you can pick things up reasonably quickly without hammering everything too much. I've noticed the Slack app handles this fairly well. If if the Slack Mac app um, can't connect, it it puts up a little banner that says unable to connect, retrying in you know some number of seconds, and it counts down, and it does this sort of exponential back off the first time. I think it retries you know five seconds later, but then they also add a button that says retry now. So if you... yeah, allowing the user again user control over that stuff because they may know know what's going on better than you do. And uh, especially if you're backing off to where it's a minute or two between requests and, you know, maybe the user's like, oh, well, you can't connect because my cable modem crashed and I just rebooted it, so now you can connect. And if you don't make them wait, that may make them happier. Yeah, that's a pretty solid pattern. Gmail does the same thing. Right. Gives you the power to try it again if you want. Yeah, and with a web page, you know, there's always the refresh button, but for apps, you kind of have to do that yourself. Is there anything else about syncing or... Uh, network connectivity planning that we should talk about? Well, I wanted to talk about going back to the, the document syncing. How does like Dropbox make things more difficult? So the main problem that I have with Dropbox, and this is not really you know their fault exactly, it's just because they try to do work with everything is just that they make no attempt at merging. And if you, you know, if you edit the same document from two places without, uh, you know, and one of them is offline, then you just end up with two copies and it says one of them is conflicted and that's it. And rather than try to deal with those conflicted copies, that's why I decided to basically go with every computer gets their own file. And instead of trying to kind of work with Dropbox's conflict resolution, and maybe that's different from something like Google drive or Microsoft stuff, just kind of try to bypass that. So really what, what's difficult about Dropbox isn't so much what they do, it's just the fact that they are, uh, they're not really a synchronization service exactly. They're more of a, I'm not really sure how you would describe it, but essentially they're just trying to replicate files. And from the level where they work, they can't really do anything fancier. And the fact that they are replicating files means that you have to work at the file level, essentially. And so that kind of restricts how you can approach things. Are there any differences? So you talked about wanting to support other things like Dropbox, like uh, Microsoft's, is it called OneDrive? And uh, I guess probably iCloud Drive as well. Are there any different considerations for, for those or do you treat them pretty much the same way? Uh, my goal is to just have the whole thing not care what you're using and just have it all work. And I think... Because they all ultimately do the same basic thing, you know, base, what they do is they take a file and they make sure it goes everywhere. And the only really, the only place where they could really differ is what happens in the event of a conflict. 
And so I'm not sure how these other services deal with conflicts. I imagine it's probably similar to Dropbox in that they'll just give you both copies and let you work it out. But my idea is that if I can just avoid ever creating a conflict at the level that they can see, then all those differences should disappear. And you'll just see a service that makes sure that the same data exists everywhere. And then because everybody, every computer is dealing with a different file, you'll never conflict at the file level. And then at the document level, which in this case is a conceptually a con- collection of files, then you can deal with conflicts more intelligently in our own software, which understands what's going on more. So my hope is that if I do it right, I don't have to care what the differences are because they won't apply. Cool. I'll be interested to hear how that actually works out. Uh, yes, me too, actually. I read, a, this is an aside, but I read a, a blog post by, um, or I think it was actually, it was a, a podcast with um, Gus Mueller yesterday. Yes. And the, the interviewer asked about Voodoo Pad, and he mm-hmm. said, oh, I don't really know what the status is, but you're working, that he thought you were working on it. And uh, so I'm glad to hear that you are working on it. I think there's yeah. a lot of people that like Voodoo Pad and are kind of eager for an update. Yes, we we had a period where we couldn't dedicate much time to it, but now we're back into the swing of it, and uh, we're hoping to get a, a point update into people's hands pretty soon here, and uh, bigger things to come. Yeah, well, that's good news. I think we all know, though, how app development is an unpredictable beast. You never quite know how long it's going to take. Yes, that is true, but uh, we'll try our best for sure. Well, it always takes until the money runs out. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think <laughs> Mike is hoping hoping that's not anytime soon. No, no. <laughs> yes, like I'm, I'm hoping we can, we can get something out there before the money runs out. That would be cool. That's good. Anything else you guys want to talk about? I, I would just like to very briefly propose that we all agree that the past tense of sync, as in document sync, should be sunk, not synced. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right. That's my I, reputation I just, after the app doesn't work like it's supposed to. There so. you go. <laughs> after you sunk your app but yeah this has been some really good conversation on document sync and handling offline cases in your apps i'm ready to get to the picks sounds good to me all right mike your inaugural picks as a ifreaks panelist uh all right well since i just posted the link anyway how about that uh, differential synchronization stuff that's a really interesting web page with a lot of uh interesting information about how to uh, diff text and merge text and things like that. And even if you're not doing anything like that, it's uh, still very educational. Very cool. Andrew? Yeah, I've got a couple picks today. The first one is a company called MailRoute. I think people, a lot of people have probably heard of them, but it's, it's a server-side spam filtering service. And I had a, one particular email address out of the 10 or so that I use actively that had recently just become inundated with spam and changing the spam filtering settings on the host didn't didn't uh, fix anything and I got kind of fed up so I signed up for MailRoute which is not free but it has uh, completely eliminated my spam problem so far for the last week or so so I'm pretty pleased with it and it was not hard to set up they've been very good customer service wise too so that's MailRoute and then my second pick is um, I I have a Mac 2 that has recently had its hard drive go bad, which is not too surprising because it's the same hard drive that was put in the machine when it was new in 1987. But the problem is it's a little bit tough to come by good new hard drives, you know, 40 megabyte hard drives for a Mac 2. So I found this project called SCSI 2 SD. Uh, the guy, it, it's it's an open source hardware project, but the guy's also selling the boards. And it's um, basically just 
a circuit board that's roughly the same um, dimensions as a hard drive, but it, instead of being a hard drive, it has a SCSI port and a micro SD slot. So you can use this to put a micro SD card in your in your old computer, and it's specifically meant for old SCSI computers, including old Macs, but also Amigas and Atari, some Atari computers and uh, things like that. So I'm I have I do not have one yet, but I'm hoping to get it soon, and I'll report back with my findings. Those are my picks. You really have me wishing I had an old computer that I could use this in now. Yeah, I've got a I've got a Mac 2 and a Mac Plus, um, but the Mac Plus is actually okay. So hopefully this will resurrect the Mac 2. I luckily have a backup of everything that was on the hard drive that I pulled off before it died. So I hope I can get it back up to where it was. It's running System 6. Very nice. All right, for my picks, I'm going to carry on the tradition and do WWDC picks. For those who are traveling out there, we don't have Pete this year, who was our resident Bay Area expert. Mike, are you going to the conference? No, I'm not. Uh, I couldn't make up my mind as to whether I wanted to try to get in, and you know, time makes fools of us all at that point. So I did the same thing. I couldn't decide if I could afford it or not, which meant I could not afford it, so I, I'm not going. That's too bad. So I'll be there. Alondo's there, and I'll actually be speaking at AltConf on Tuesday morning, so you can check us out there. But yeah, definitely, if you're in the area, hit us up on, on Twitter. Alondo's there. I'm there. And a couple of picks that Pete did last year, I, I enjoyed. There's a food truck curry up now that it's in a, it moves around, but the area where I found it was in the G Food Lounge, which is a bit of a walk from the kind of conference area, but, you know, doable within an hour. The G Food Lounge just has a, you know, three or four food trucks out there that have a different selection of food. So if you have people that can't decide what they want to eat, it's a good choice and it's a nice walk kind of on the way to the, the giant stadium. Another pick I have is Calzones, which is in Little Italy. I had my Airbnb canceled like two weeks before the event last year, so I had to scramble to find a place to stay, and I ended up staying in Russian Hill, which meant I had to commute down to kind of the Moscone area. But one night I walked home and kind of wandered through Little Italy and stopped by Calzones and had some amazing Italian food. And there's a place across the street with you know, pastry is like a candy shop where I had some amazing cannolis. So I can definitely say get a cannoli from Little Italy if you can pull it off. Um, Soma's great, but there's a lot of really cool areas in San Francisco. So, yeah, those are my picks for Dub Dub this year. Uh, this, And if you're like me, you're probably listening to a podcast on a plane on the way there. So possibly. So hopefully your podcast is handling your offline stuff reasonably well. But that's all I had. Anything else from the peanut gallery? Are you going to wear your iFreaks t-shirt? I will. While you're out there? Uh, I've, I've got it. You'll, you'll see the the light pink long sleeve shirt. I shouldn't be hard to spot. No, the, the these pink iFreaks t-shirts definitely don't help you blend into a crowd. Nope. That's how it goes. So yeah, great show. I learned a ton. I think we provided some really good information. And welcome to the show, Mike. Uh, glad to have you on. Well, thanks very much. So, and uh, looking forward to uh, more. Yeah, we'll see you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. 
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 